let's ask God, as we do every week, to help us understand his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our true and living God, who caused uh, your word to be written down for your people, uh, we pray now that we would know the good work of your word in our lives, that would help us to trust our Lord Jesus for salvation, and through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we will be equipped to live as your people, live lives that please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What can I do today to ensure the destruction of my nation, my church, my family, myself? Now, you probably didn't ask yourself that question this morning. And you probably have never asked yourself that question any morning. In fact, unless you've had a series of really bad days, you probably haven't woken up in the morning and, and asked, well, what can I do today to avoid making a complete mess of my life and ruining my country and my church and my family? Because let's face it, that seems a pretty pessimistic way to start the day, doesn't it? But you probably haven't even asked yourself the opposite question, or at least not often. What can I do today to promote the flourishing of my nation, my church, my family, myself? What can I do to help me and those around me prosper as people and not fail? As I've said, you may not ever have asked yourself any of those questions. But as we hear about God commanding Jeremiah to write the words of God on a scroll, an event, that will teach us a lot about the character of the Bible we have. And as we hear of the actions of King Joachim, as he listens to God's word written, that's the choice God's word presents us with. Will we be like Jehoiakim and doom ourselves and our community to ruin by contempt for the written word of God? Or will we take the opposite path, the path of humbly listening to the living God by listening to the word he caused to be written the path of life. So that's the issue, perish or prosper. Uh, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, reading Jeremiah, you'll notice that the prophecies of Jeremiah are not arranged in chronological order. So, for example, in chapters 28, 29, 32 and 34, we have already had prophecies from the reign of King Zedekiah, the king who followed Jehoiakim from the period 598 to 587 BC. But the event recorded in this chapter comes well before Zedekiah's reign. It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, 605 BC. And it's a significant year in world history because it's the first year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and it's the year he defeated the Egyptian army at Carchemish. Global power is being realigned. And it's also a significant year in the book of Jeremiah being the time when the oracles of chapter 25, chapter 36 and chapter 45 are given Oracles which are actually central to the structure of the second half of the book of Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah is a book which is very deliberately arranged and this chapter, returning to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, has been deliberately placed before the story of the final years of Jerusalem 
in chapters 37 to 39. Chapters which take us from the faithless dithering of Jehoiakim's successor Zedekiah to the Babylonian triumph and the burning of Jerusalem and the temple. And the point of the arrangement is to make clear that even though that destruction happens 18 years later, it is the attitude of King Jehoiakim to the word of God written expressed so dramatically with his knife in his fourth year that makes that end inevitable. Jehoiakim's attitude ensures the destruction of his nation. Well, the action starts in verse 2 where we're introduced to what will be the main character in the story, the character whom all the action revolves around, the words of God written on a scroll at Jeremiah's dictation. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah and all the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. Now, there's lots to learn about the word of God written, the Bible, in this account of the writing of part of that word. So firstly, you see, the initiative is God's. It's he who commands that the words he has given Jeremiah to speak be now written down. It wasn't Jeremiah thinking, oh, I could die soon, so I better create a record of my ministry. It wasn't Baruch saying, look, I really ought to preserve these sacred oracles for the community. It was God saying, right. The Bible is God's idea. And it's not a selection made by Jeremiah of what God has said to him, you know, the greatest hits. It's it's not a paraphrase in either Jeremiah's or Baruch's, the scribe's words. It is all the words I have spoken to you. God is in charge of the content. And to fulfill the command, Jeremiah does enlist the help of Baruch, the scribe, whom we met briefly in chapter 32. Sorry about that. There's a point when incompetence ceases to be entertaining really isn't it right Uh, okay so you meet him chapter four so Jeremiah summoned Baruch the son of Neriah at Jeremiah's dictation Baruch wrote on a scroll all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah so it's made very clear that the words Baruch writes down in ink on the scroll are the words of God and so the presence of another person Baruch in the process then the person, Jeremiah, who first received the revelation doesn't in any way diminish the status of what is written as God's word. In fact, you see in verse 4 a clear sequence to getting this written revelation. So the Lord has spoken words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah then dictates them to Baruch. Baruch writes them down at Jeremiah's dictation And the product of Baruch's labour is the word of the Lord. So that when the scroll is read to the people, the people are hearing the Lord's words. Verse 6, read from the scroll which you wrote at my dictation, the words of the Lord. 
verse 8, at the Lord's temple, he read the Lord's words from the scroll. The written words on the scroll are the Lord's words, while at the same time, they are also Jeremiah's words. Baruch read Jeremiah's words from the scroll. As Jeremiah's words, these written words are human words, able to be understood in the way we understand all human words. You know, we look at the context of the words, explore the imagery, consider the particularities of Jeremiah's time and place, learn at least some of us the language Jeremiah used. They're human words that can be understood and can be translated into other human words. But as the Lord's words, we know they are true and sure. For God does not lie, and he is almighty and faithful, committed to doing all that he has said. As the Lord's words, the words of the creator and sustainer of life, they also come with authority. What God promises is to be believed. What he commands is to be obeyed. His warnings to be heeded. For he is almighty and always lives to uphold and fulfil his word. Jeremiah's scroll is the word of man and the word of God. And that's true of all the scriptures, even those that did not come into being like Jeremiah's dictated by the prophet. As Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures come on the breath of God. In all scripture, humans speak, but what they say originates not with them but with God, and the Spirit carries them along to the Spirit's destination so that what they say and write in their own words is what God wanted them to say and write God's words. And God spoke his word and now has his word written for a purpose. Verse 3, perhaps when the house of Judah hears about all the disaster I am planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way, then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Or again, verse 6, read his words in the, hear, read his words in the hearing of all the Judeans who are coming from their cities. Perhaps their petition will come before the Lord and each one will turn from his evil way for the anger and fury that the Lord has announced against this people are intense. God's is a merciful purpose in giving us the scriptures. He sends his word into the world to save. So he threatens judgment, warns of where sin will lead to turn people back from death. Remember chapter 18, the visit of Jeremiah to the potter in every warning. There is the promise that judgment can be turned aside if the people will turn back to God, for he's compassionate and merciful. And it's still true that God sends his word into the world with its clear warning of judgment to save. So consider first John 3. John writes, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, this is a clear and serious warning, telling us that as we are living to please ourselves and not trusting God's King Jesus, we will face God's burning just wrath. But why was John written? You get to John 20. And John says, 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God's word written to give life to spare from judgment. As Paul says of the scriptures, the written word of God, 2 Timothy 3.15, they are given to show us how to be saved through faith in Christ Jesus, to give us wisdom for salvation. Even though God's word warns of judgment, present and future, and it can be confronting to hear like a doctor's diagnosis of serious illness, it is given to save. And God causing his word to be written down is giving us a great gift. By being written down, its message is not just preserved but reinforced and able to be heard by many more. See, what's the effect of having Jeremiah's words written down? Well, the words of God are able to be heard beyond the prophet's immediate circle and where the prophet cannot go. Their reach is extended in place and time and we see that here. Jeremiah can't go and speak in the temple, but Baruch can go and read his words, the words of God for the people. The people who cannot listen to Jeremiah can hear the words of God God gave to Jeremiah and so have opportunity to turn back to God and find mercy and life. It's a merciful thing to have these words written down. But a scroll can also be sent to Babylon. The word be present where the prophet himself will never come be present to a people who so needed the word in their disorientation and doubt. Oh, and the written word can be present in times the prophet cannot be, the future, present even when the prophet is dead. We are hearing it today and Jeremiah's long dead. And that means we can hear the word as a vindicated, a proven word in its fulfilment and so grow in trust in the word. That's just as the exiles in Babylon heard it, as those who returned heard it, and yes, as we can hear it. See, think of the exiles, seeing the prophecies of judgment fulfilled. Well, that would have given them confidence of their return in the 70 years spoken of by Jeremiah. And then think of those living in Judah after the return, the confirmation of the truthfulness of Jeremiah's words in judgment and return would have helped those hearing the words of Jeremiah after the return of the exiles but before Christ came trust that those great promises still to be fulfilled like the promise of the new covenant would be fulfilled, help them live with a sure hope. And seeing Jeremiah's promises fulfilled not just in judgment and return but in Christ's death and resurrection helps us today trust that God will do all that he has promised us that is yet to be fulfilled, confirms for us his trustworthiness. Written down, future generations hear the word as a fulfilled, a vindicated word to strengthen their trust. And written down, we can hear it not just as a vindicated word, we can hear the words God has spoken in their, ter- in their totality as an accumulated word, not just one prophecy here or there, but all the words of the Lord given to Jeremiah over the years, more, all the books of the Bible given to God's people over the years, and that's good. For those who receive the written word can now feel the weight of God's undeviating purpose 
and unchanging, consistent character revealed over centuries of his dealings with his people. We can know what matters to him, what he's committed to, and growing confidence in him as we see him persistently and consistently pursuing his plan to save his people. It is a gracious work of God that he would provide for us an accurate record of what he has said, give us his words in writing, words spoken to turn us to him, to give us life, to make it possible to know and trust him. Well, of course, the writing of the scroll is hard work. It's the work of months. But in the following year, it's finished and an opportunity prevents itself at the day of fasting in verses 9 and 10 for Baruch to read the scroll to the people. And what we see is that the word of God gets a pretty mixed reception. There is a group of officials in the scribes' chamber who are concerned to hear the word and so send for Baruch and then are concerned by what they hear. You see their names there, Elisham, Adela. Now this is not a random group. They're a group that have links to and memory of the discovery of the scroll of the covenant in Josiah's reign. In fact, it was that, <laughs> that bloke Gemariah's father who had read the scroll to Josiah and who had witnessed the king's response, tearing his robes. And it was Gemariah's brother Ahikam who had earlier, Jeremiah 26, protected Jeremiah from the priests and the prophets who wanted to kill him. So this group knew God's word should be respected and heeded, that what the prophet was saying was important for the welfare of the kingdom. And so they say uh, to Baruch, sit down and read it in our hearing. And so he reads it in their hearing. And when they had heard all the words, they turned to each other in fear and said, we must surely tell the king all these things. When they hear, they respond with fear. Fear at what may befall the kingdom if the word goes (coughs) unheeded. Fear for the king's reaction. But they know the king must hear because the welfare of the kingdom is the king's first responsibility. But first, they established securely the source of what had been read. Tell us, how did you write all these words? At his dictation? Oh, yes, at his dissectation. He recited all the words. So they make sure it's really the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And then wisely, they take precautions for Jeremiah and Baruch's safety. For King Jehoiakim has already had another prophet who brought a similar message to Jeremiah's murdered. So it's quite a reasonable concern. Now that's the first response to the words of God written. Listening and fear, concern at the judgment Jeremiah warned of. A complete contrast to the response of King Jehoiakim. (laughs) The king, verse 24, has no fear. He didn't become terrified or tear his clothes. For him, it's just a scroll, a piece of parchment with words in ink, powerless, able to be put on the shelf, fetched at will, weak and frail, 
with no defence beyond its own words, no accompanying argument for its value, easily destroyed, its unwelcome message dismissed. And Jehoiakim is very determined in his rejection. Notice that it's not an act of passion or ignorance. It's deliberate contempt. He listens to the words and having heard them, slices the columns of text off the scroll and burns them, despite the protests of those in whom the word has sparked fear. In fact, he is determined to destroy the source of such unwelcome words. He wants to get his hands on Jeremiah and Baruch. Now, the king's objection to what he's hearing is clear. See that in verse 29. You have burned the scroll asking, why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause it to be without people or animals? You see, Jehoiakim had been set on the throne by Pharaoh Necho, the Egyptian, Babylon's enemy. He was dependent on Egypt for his legitimacy and he was actually pursuing a policy of friendship with Egypt, seeking to secure the nation through that alliance. Others in court felt no debt to Egypt, were actually advocating for alliance with Babylon. And so in Jehoiakim's view, Jeremiah was meddling in the affairs of state, undermining his authority and policy, just part of a power play, one human voice amongst many in his court, and its value was to be judged against his priorities. Jehoiakim was just hearing ordinary human words, the words of someone who really had no power or influence, words that could be despised. You see, he wants there to be no doubt about who is in charge in his court. He, Jehoiakim, rules. And what he objects to, what conflicts with his interests, has no right, he thinks, to exist in his presence. So Jehoiakim is confident in his own power and wisdom to keep him secure and prosperous. Jehoiakim, you see, has no place for a living God who can speak and act. A God who says he rules in Israel and expects the people and its rulers to keep the covenant between God and his people or face the consequences already revealed in the covenant, the judgment on covenant breakers. He's got no time for this God. And it is his attitude to God which is revealed in his attitude to the word of God spoken or written. And this is always the way, isn't it? When Adam and Eve choose to believe the serpent's word, you shall not die, instead of God's word, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, they are showing what they think of God. They're saying God's not trustworthy. He's unable to uphold the judgments of his word. He is not as wise as them. They're reducing the creator to a creature. And his word, one word amongst many, and they get to decide what is true and right. And people's attitude to God, which is, it, it is people's attitude to God which is revealed in their attitude to the word of God. And, of course, this is seen most clearly when the eternal word, the Lord Jesus, comes to live amongst his people and is not received. See, the eternal word comes at God's initiative to save, 
comes calling for people to repent, to turn back to God and believe his word. And in him, the Lord Jesus, the word incarnate, we see and hear God most clearly. And while some responded to him by believing his word that the kingdom of God was near, when he and his message threatened the power and control of human rulers, they silenced him. They couldn't have God rule. God, as he revealed himself in his son, rule through insisting his word be believed and obeyed. See, the trust of those rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, was in their own wisdom and power to keep themselves secure and prosperous, even right with God. Their attitude to the word of God revealed their attitude to God. And notice this, because we're religious people, the Pharisees and Sadducees could despise the God who spoke in his word while copying, not cutting, the written word. They had an outward reverence for the written word while using it by interpreting it through their traditions to support their own power and influence, ignoring what it was actually saying. And so the coming of the eternal word then revealed for all to see their abuse of the written word. They're subordinating God to themselves by making his word submit to their wisdom, their traditions. See, a lying pen can consume the word as much as the fire and you can despise the word with hammer and nails as well as with a knife. It is people's attitude to God which is revealed in people's attitude to the word of God and that's still true today. Your attitude to God is revealed in your attitude to the written word, the Bible. His words he caused to be written down in human words through his spirit, the words in which we hear our God, his instructions, his warnings, his promises. And you cannot have a relationship with God apart from believing his word written. Now I know some claim to do that. I know some claim to love Jesus while rejecting the authority of scripture. Respect Jesus, but dismissing his word through his apostles. But that is not possible. You cannot know the Lord Jesus. You cannot relate to him as he is, the Lord with all authority, where you reject his word. The scriptures he fulfilled and the scriptures he caused to be written by his apostles, our Bible. Where you reject his word, it's not the Lord Jesus you're expecting, but a fictional Jesus whom you have made the servant to your own imagination or your spirituality. And it's always a much poorer, less able to save Jesus. Where you're despising his word, you are despising the God who spoke it. And we have to think there are many ways of despising God's word. I mean, you can despise the word by open repudiation. God says, do this, and you say, so what? So so what if God says I should keep my word when lying gets me further? So what if God says sex should be for marriage when sex outside marriage feels so good? To know what God says and do the opposite, that's to despise God. Oh, and we can despise God by subordinating his word to the creature's word like Adam. 
Interpreting the word to conform to the latest insights, say, of modern psychology or in relation to sexuality or, or self-esteem, subordinating God's word to human words. And you can despise the word by selective omission, refusing to reckon with those parts of Scripture, such as there being only one way to God through the Lord Jesus or speak of judgment or hell, refusing to reckon with those parts of Scripture you don't want to think about. That's despising God's word. Oh, and you can despise God's word by not hearing what it says, but making it say what you want it to say so that it supports you, supports your status and choices. Like, for example, justifying slavery from Scripture or domineering control of a wife from Scripture or your greed from Scripture because you say it tells you that God wants you to be prosperous. All of these are ways of despising God's word. And where we despise the word, we are saying, I rule, not God. I am wiser than him. I can save myself. I have no need of him. You're putting your trust in lies and not the truth. But the word will give no defence of itself beyond its own words. Sitting there on the page, just like any other human word in a book you can shut and put back on the shelf at our beck and call, so frail and weak. That's how it comes to us, isn't it? So ordinary, so able to be excluded from our lives, just like Jesus before Pilate, with no one else to defend him, so weak, so unimportant, so human, so mortal like all the rest, so easily excluded from life, shamed, humiliated, destroyed on the cross. Oh, just like the scroll, Jehoiakim sought to exclude from the life of Judah, burnt in a demonstration of his own power. But that scroll was the words of God given to Jeremiah, dictated to Baruch, the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord can no more be destroyed by us than the Lord who speaks it. After the king had burnt the scroll and the words Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and once again write on it the original words that were on the original scroll that King Jehoiakim of Judah burned. You see, Jehoiakim had not, as he wished, silenced God by attacking the written word. God's word appears again in the same frail dress, a scroll, but a word which with every assault, every denial and every vindication is seen to be stronger, more true, surer than any mere human word. Jehoiakim had not silenced God. No, verse 30, what he's done is ensure his own destruction. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning King Jehoiakim of Judah. He will have no one to sit on David's throne and his corpse will be thrown out to be exposed to the heat of day and the frost of night. I will punish him, his descendants and his officers for their iniquity. I will bring on them, on the residents of Jerusalem and on the people of Judah, all the disaster which I warned them about, but they did not listen. It ensured his own destruction and 
the destruction of his people by his refusal to listen. His refusal to humble himself and acknowledge the words of the true king of Israel, the king who could save and who now pronounces his judgment. That's true, isn't it? Those who killed the Lord Jesus had not silenced God. God has life in himself. The creature cannot kill the creator because he is not a creature. His is not a material life like a creature's life. They only established their own guilt, ensured their own destruction, visited upon them in the decades that followed. And we cannot silence God. We can't make his word untrue by wanting it to be untrue. His words that warn of judgment and salvation only through faith in the Lord Jesus that speak of his return in glory, the words of the gospel, they remain true. The words that we heard from John, the one who believes in the Son has life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath rests remains on him. Or the words of the gospel preached by Paul to the Athenians. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed and he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. These words remain true whether we deny them, ridicule them, ignore them. And because God's word that comes to us in such a humble dress, printed on a page like billions of other human words, because that word that comes to us in such frailty and weakness remains true, we, every one of us here, has a choice. And it is a choice between ensuring our own destruction by refusing to listen to God's word, by despising and dismissing God's word, despising and dismissing God's son who comes to us in his gospel word, choice between ensuring our own destruction or finding mercy and life by humbling ourselves before God's word, confessing its truth that Jesus crucified is the son of God, the Lord, with all authority now, authority to forgive us or judge us, confessing that truth and asking him for the forgiveness he will give. Now that is everyone's first and foundational choice, to believe the gospel or not. And just like Jehoiakim's choice, it is a choice that affects not just us, but those we live amongst, those who depend on us, a choice between perishing or prospering, death and life. Now, the consequences of that choice for us and others may not be immediately obvious in your life or the lives of those who depend on you, just as the consequences of Jehoiakim's choice took years to emerge. It takes time, for example, for the effect of your greed or sexual immorality or your pride which rejects God to be seen and felt in your own life and the life of your family. But those consequences will appear and you will endure them. Just as it can take time for the consequences of your determination to live a life of integrity, to be generous, 
to honour God's word in your family, just as it takes time for those consequences to appear in your life and your family's life and your society's. But the consequences pronounced in God's word are sure. We have a choice. And that we have this foundational choice is only because God is gracious. You see, this choice is not a burden but a gift. Jeremiah's word that called the Judeans to turn back to God was spoken to a sinful people. They didn't deserve another opportunity, did not merit mercy. Remember the things we've heard them do, including sacrificing their children. They already deserved condemnation. But in Jeremiah's word, believing it, turning to God, they could find mercy. The choice presented comes from mercy. The gospel word Jesus speaks into the world by his apostles is spoken to sinful people as well, isn't it? People like you and I who have rebelled against God, who by nature love ourselves and not our creator. And we don't deserve another opportunity. None of us deserves mercy. But God offers that to us. If we will listen to his word, believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and turn back to him. This choice comes to us by his mercy to offer us mercy. And so if you've never, never engaged with God's offer, you should today. Jesus lives, he will hear you and show you mercy if you turn back to him. But this choice to humble ourselves and believe his word is not just a choice we make once. It's a choice we have every time we hear or read God's word. It's a choice we make and then keep making every day, every day, to be and keep on being those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at God's word every day, not to let the word of God, the scripture, be to us just another word amongst many. Every day to choose not to treat the words of scripture as if they've just human words, advice we can take or leave as it suits us, but words which call for our faith and obedience. Every day we have to choose to hear them as the word of our good or wise or mighty God to be believed and obeyed for our good always. And that's a a choice exercised by hearing and reading the scriptures prayerfully acknowledging our natural blindness and the need for the Spirit to give us understanding, a choice exercised by gathering to hear the Word and by making time in private to read the Word, a choice exercised by hearing and reading the Scriptures, not just to let them pass us by, but to store them in our hearts, to inform our thinking, desiring and willing by them, a choice exercised by being determined to be readers and hearers who do And so people who reflect on our lives and and whether what we're doing is what our God teaches and changing where we need to. So don't be like Jehoiakim. See the reality of the scriptures, not just the appearance. They are the word of the living God, God speaking to us. The powerful, enduring, always truthful word given to bring us life, eternal life, in living and trusting and obeying our saving God 
by trusting and obeying his son Jesus who comes to us in his word. And so embrace Christ by embracing his word. And so live and be a blessing, not a curse, to those you live amongst. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, there are many things to distract us from reading and meditating on your word. There are many voices that seek to undermine it, uh, to undermine its authority and truthfulness in our lives. And there are many things in it that we often hear and don't want to hear. And so we pray, gracious Father, by the powerful work of your spirit, that you would move us to love your word, to read it and store it in our hearts, to change our thinking and acting to conform to its truth. We pray, gracious Father, that you would move us to love the Saviour, your word reveals, to know his love and to want to live for him by abiding in his teaching, the teaching we receive in your good word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.